Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Model Advisor podcast. My name is Will Robbins. Uh, I'm the editor of New Model Advisor and this week I'm going to take control uh, so I can interview my colleague uh, and our features editor, Ollie Smith. Ollie has spent a substantial chunk of the last seven days on the road, latterly at the Conservative Party conference. So to find out uh, what, if anything, Ollie has been up to, I have assembled a liberal list of conservative questions. Hi, Ollie. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I'm all right. Good. good. You sound. You sound good. You I sound sound alive. I'm. I'm, I'm alive. Good. good, good. <laughs> right. Well, here we go. Let's uh, let's crack on. Uh, look, what was the? Who was the standout? I don't want to say character because I think we're going to know the answer to that. But yeah, political yeah. performer at the conference. Um. Well, it it pains me to say this because there really, I think at the moment there really is a uh, there really is a lack of kind of standout political talent in the cabinet so i am going to have to answer that question by saying you know misdemeanors aside in terms of political performance you know it has to be boris boris is this charismatic incredibly uh, enthusiastic people kind of person and everywhere he went you know there was this mixed reaction uh, and it was loud you know turning heads uh, dividing people uh, you know, there were jeers, but there were also cheers. There were, uh, you know, photographers everywhere. It was he. He was he was the main event, just as he was last year in Birmingham when he very very rudely, kind of uh, sidelined Theresa May to make his own kind of stump speech uh, at the end of the conference. So, sadly, as much as I would love to say that it was someone else, a Secretary of State somewhere in a department somewhere, it was Boris. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I remember my own experience of the, the conferences, the, the Conservative conference year, years ago when I went and, uh, and he upstaged David Cameron by, by holding a, a sort of rally. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, not, not to pass any judgment on whether he's doing a good job or not, but it certainly he would probably continue to upstage other, the other leaders until he really, until he became leader himself, which, which has now happened. Yes, indeed. So... Well, you know, you, you went, I, I saw your, your dispatches, Ollie, you, you <laughs> went to a number of events, you listened to, spoke to a lot of people, and we'll get on to that. But, um, you know, who, I guess who, you know, just to sort of talk personalities, I suppose, or performances at the moment, was, you know, who was sort of most impressive, or whose star is, is rising uh, at the moment, in, in or outside of the immediate circle of power, I suppose. Do you know what? I think in terms of rising stars, and again, this gives me no pleasure to say it, but I, I really had this sense that Pretty Patel, you know, she was back. You know, wow. Pretty Patel really? Pretty Patel had this kind of quite dreadful diplomatic row that resulted in her being ejected from Theresa May's cabinet over, you know, unofficial meetings with the Israeli government. Right. You yes. may remember that from some time ago before, yeah. you know, uh, the current malaise got worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh but she's back, you know. She's she's Home Secretary now, and and boy does she mean it. I mean, this was a this was a huge political risk, I think, for Boris to take because you, here you have a politician uh, who exudes the ki same kind of charm and charisma, actually. And uh, I saw her give an interview to L, uh, L LBC, uh, yep. fronted by your old boss uh, Ian Dale. That's right. And uh, so they had their kind of uh, their temporary studio set up in the conference exhibition area. And there was a huge crowd for that to stand there and watch uh, among the other. I mean, there wasn't space 
there was a huge crowd to listen to, to, to what she had to say. And um, it, it really strikes me that, you know, having basically committed the worst possible uh, sin as a cabinet minister uh, while in the, I believe, International Development uh, Department, you know, she's been given this this second chance. She's been she's a cat with nine lives and she's back and she's been given the third most powerful office of state you know, Home Secretary, uh, control over policing, immigration, crime, which is a central part of the Conservative mm. agenda anyway, never mind at this conference where they were talking a lot about, you know, violent crime reduction, tough on crime, tough yeah. on the causes of crime, yeah. all of that. So I think her star is really rising. She is one to watch. Uh, and I have to, on a sort of personal level, I'm mildly disturbed by that, given some of the things that she said about capital punishment, <laughs> yeah, for in instance. Past, but yeah. she she's absolutely up there, I would say. Yes, without going into uh, the cul-de-sac uh, or the, the rabbit hole that, that is you know, that speech, you know, but I think uh, I've, I've seen from so, so my own social media bubble that people who I agree with me on other things also agree that they didn't like that <laughs> speech. But yeah. um, maybe maybe just to sort of, with, you know, without uh, pursuing red herrings, that it's the, what we could say is it's about culture yeah. uh, and perhaps wh- where that, we're going to go after, assuming Brexit happens, where those lines might be drawn in the next, in the coming years. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a sea change there. I mean, it, <laughs> it seems almost nonsensical to me that even two years ago, it would have been outrageous for a Home Secretary to start talking so openly and so proudly, I think, in a speech about ending free movement. You know, free movement, I mean, it sounds great, but this is something that Priti Patel at this conference was absolutely sticking a spike in. I mean, she was, you know, she was saying, I think, for the first time, uh, you know, in recent British political history, this is a bad thing. We're going to stop it. And uh, that, to me, represented a real change and a a change in the discourse and, and as you say, a drawing of the battle lines for Mm. future. I I guess one last observation that I suppose it it is an economic issue because... She's talking about immigration and the, mm. the, one of the things that I think she expected applause for and got some for uh, was uh, citing the Australian points-based system. Yeah, which, absolutely. Uh, if you, you know, out of the, the many things that were said during the referendum, that was something that was repeated quite a lot mm. by the, by the uh, Leave campaign. And, um, you know, the idea of getting the, the brightest and best doctors, scientists, things like that sounds great. Mm. Um, I think this would be a good time to hear from, uh, I suppose, economists, but people, experts, those dreaded experts, mm. but to actually what the needs of an economy is, what the needs of our economy, the economy are. So uh, such that, you know, we need people who aren't scientists and uh, uh, we don't, you know, we need some people who aren't necessarily uh, bright, the brightest and best to, to, to be working in this country and, and doing valuable jobs yeah i totally agree i think you know just just in broad brush terms i was in a session on international trade with liam fox who used to be international trade secretary Mm. which was this department set up in the aftermath of the referendum to try and manage some of the promised trade deals that were supposedly coming down the line uh you know he made frequent and repeated reference to the fact that britain has obviously got this service-based economy it exports a lot of services to other countries and he talked a lot about the proportion to the eu and otherwise um you 
you know, what does that say about the uh, immigration points-based system? Well, you know, if Britain is so reliant on that as as the mainstay of its economic growth and and its economic offering to the world, it perhaps will strike some economists with a little bit of fear to hear a uh, to hear a quite radical, shall we say, Home Secretary say, you know, well, we're going to change everything because the 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 backdrop for me at this conference was, of course, every time you went and got a coffee or every time you went and bought lunch, there was someone Polish or there was someone, you know, from Eastern Europe serving sure. you. Um, and, it, you know, the irony was definitely not lost on anyone that we are about to make a potentially huge change to the way that all of this works, um, perhaps with not 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 entirely uh, the best separate set of preparations to do so. Yeah, yeah. Well, moving on, uh, who, I suppose, is down? <laughs> well, who's down? I mean, I... I this is a real disappointment to me because I think, um, you know, we've had a, a great engagement with her and we've had a, a great time hearing what she's had to say as, as for, you know, as chair of the Treasury, Treasury Select Committee. But Nikki Morgan, you know, who left that post to become uh, culture secretary for Boris Johnson. I mean, Nikki Morgan was was getting absolutely panned on the BBC. Uh, we talk about, you know, leopards changing their spots and politicians, you know, on manoeuvres in order to please their constituents. And she's in a really difficult position right now. Because, why, why say? Well, because Nikki Morgan... Morgan is one of these sort of sensible centrist Tory Remainers who has had to accept the party line on Brexit uh, and uh, and now back in government, she is having to be a face and a mouthpiece for those policies. Yeah. Not entirely comfortably, I don't think. Um, but with a constituency like like hers, uh, I would imagine that you know not only has a substantial uh, leave vote, but a, a very, very substantial Tory membership that mm. is very heavily in favour of Leave. Uh, you could really, really see that uh, the sands had shifted for her. I thought she was a brilliant Treasury Select Committee chair. I thought she was sensible, moderate, engaging, uh, charming. And now I think as Culture Secretary, she's she's bombarded from all sides, uh, from Remainer MPs in this so-called, you know, in this WhatsApp group, uh, mm. supposedly, who are telling her to resign or be complicit in a potential no-deal Brexit and the impact that that could have on Britain, but also from her colleagues within government who are telling her, you know, to, pre to prepare for no deal, to come up with the policies. Uh, and she was saying to me, I had a brief conversation with her, you know, she said that no deal is a an, an opportunity for Britain to forge its own data protection rules, uh, potentially to the benefit of the fintech companies. And you know, that, to me, sounds completely kind of alien to most of the uh, more moderate things that she said in the past and indeed yeah. with our interview with her la last year where you know she was saying you know no deal is not the outcome she's now trying to sell that as yeah. a you know as a, a preparatory and um, potentially a good good outcome yes very different we did a video interview with her uh, and that was played at our conference in January so this yeah. is yes people who attended that conference were definitely uh, but perhaps be scratching their heads uh, at how, how far she's gone we do like Nikki Morgan we one do. of the reasons uh, another reason is because she uh, grilled the FCA this year Indeed on its uh, handling and, in, and, and, and failure to anticipate some of the issues around Neil Woodford's fund and uh, was uh, we also got she got points for citing uh, CityWire's uh, coverage and uh, on, on that issue before before it blew up but um, uh, yeah sad, sad to see that she's got into a sticky situation um, so just quick quickly moving on uh, you know, were any anything surprising at all at the conference? I, I, a couple of things, actually. I mean, the first thing, I mean, this shouldn't really be a surprise, but I, I'm now used to going to 
conservative conferences and I'm used to you know mixing with the Tory youth you know the Tory youth who they're really really smartly dressed a lot of them they want to show off their best suits the smartest shoes they want to uh, they really look up to some of the uh, the brightest stars in the cabinet they have their heroes they have their villains you can almost see them trading their you know their invisible uh, cards you know who have you got who's up who's down playing top trumps in their conversations about politics and uh, I'm very used to seeing how excited they are. The, the real difference I saw this year was the number of uh, Tory youth who were not in that sort of smartly dressed, I'm going to dress like a Tory politician uh, uh, ilk. They were there in their trainers and their tracksuits and their kind of fashionable Topshop outfits, you know, whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> that was really, really striking, you know, and, and it's Boris that's done that. Boris has attracted this this uh, this youth vote, I think, to him with his with his charisma and, and his charm. Um, particular uh, interest was, you know, the boys, the young, the 16-year-old boys who think that Boris is a legend and he has that kind of aura, I think, to attract a, uh, a youthful vote to the party that perhaps I hadn't anticipated. So I was uh, I was surprised by that. Um, what else surprised me? I mean, Dominic Raab. I mean, <laughs> Dominic Raab somehow has managed to muddle his way through all of this Brexit mess. You'll remember he backed Boris originally in 2016 for leader. He was one of the right. people writing in the Sun newspaper about how, you know, Britain needed Boris. And Boris then fell. Dominic fell you know, Boris, uh, Dominic then became Brexit secretary, fell again, resignation. You know, he's had a real up and down over the last few years. But he's now, uh, he's found his way through into a cabinet position again as foreign secretary. I mean, that that really surprised me. I mean, here is a man who is absolutely hanging on by his uh, fingertips uh, in British politics. I, I detect no real discernible uh, evidence of, you know, real political skill, but somehow... Uh, he's there, and people love him. Uh, loads of people really? wanted to go and talk to Dominic Raab. So I would have my eye on him uh, in future as, as, as someone who who is a survivor in many ways. You know, Lo- loyalty, goes, loyalty goes a long way. Indeed, it does. Uh, and he's sort of has a quite personable character. You know, I think sometimes in business as well, it's sort of how you... Some people, whether it's a politician or a, or a CEO, can, can appear one way, mm. but as, you know... If, they treat you know if they if they're approachable and they actually treat people well perhaps i don't know him very well but seems to be getting you know that maybe there's something else there that uh because he gets pretty bad bad press he gets pretty yeah. pr- pretty bad rap and people you know pretty pretty <laughs> you know but uh he does you know to, to, be, to sort of be be polite about it you know people are pretty da- disparaging of the guy yeah and, um, but he's a survivor he's a survivor yeah um great and so uh yeah do you, i mean yeah, despite, is any, I mean, as you talked about him, we've, you know, there's some rising stars. These figures have been around, I suppose, for, for a few years. Mm. Anyone, you know, every so often there's a sort of, you know, uh, I guess a, a sort of younger politician sort of, you know, or, or, or someone else like that who who seems to be making waves or having, you know, some impressing fringe events. And, and for example, anyone caught your eye? Well, yeah, again, a couple of things on that. But the, the person I'd say I was most uh, m- most impressed by in that regard 
uh, was uh, the chief secretary to the treasury, you know, Rishi Sunak. I mean, he's a, he's a pro-Brexiteer, uh, pro, pro-Brexit politician. He is young-ish. Mm. He's charismatic. He, uh, you know, he, he has a very, very uh, positive Im- image for the party in terms of his diversity. Uh, but he's playing a very clever game. I mean, he, he's a very eloquent guy. And, and in a lot of words, he can say not very much. And I think that's the perfect kind of approach for him right now because I think the party's going to be calling on people like him in future, you know, for those really, really top cabinet jobs. I mean, he uh, he appears to be in his sort of mid to late 30s at the very most. And he's, yeah. you know, he's chief secretary to the Treasury already. Yeah. yeah he's in charge of all of the government's uh, public spending and attends cabinet uh, to report to the Prime Minister about that. So he's had a quite phenomenal rise, uh, mm. you might say. So I was thinking, you know, you could potentially see a lot more from him uh, in Cabinet in future. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, with there, you know, you're obviously there are many, we were, we, there are many journalists there. Often we go as, you know, as the trade press mm. Uh, special envoy to the political conference. We're in, you know, in some ways in in uh, in someone else's is world, someone else's world for these couple of days. But uh, did you did you manage to speak to to any other journalists while you were there? Did you get a sense of what they? I mean, that's an interesting op- best opportunity to hear what they really think about about things. Yeah, and uh, there was plenty of opportunity to do that. I mean, the the most. Uh, prominent important uh, opportunity I think was uh, around this uh, punch up that occurred in the international lounge between uh, lounge between Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown and another uh, uh, attendee of the conference right. who uh, is presumed to have denied him access to the lounge because his pass uh, wasn't correct in some way yeah. they had a uh, they had a you know do not know who I am moment and you know some some form of kerfuffle ensu- some yeah some sort of a fracas <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ensued um that was a real opportunity to be in the press huddle uh, for me and to talk to other journalists about what was going on. Yeah. And I overheard a lot of people just, you know, saying, oh, this is the most exciting thing that's happened all week. So, it's right. very, <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's, it, it was very obvious that there are, there are a lot of journalists there working very hard, but there are quite a lot of journalists there who were pretty bored. Mm. And um, you know, that really, really showed. You know, I was sat uh, writing stories up on the floor of the uh, media uh, suite, you know, next to the interim Telegraph news desk. And, you know, you've got Christopher Hope, you've got Charles Moore, all of whom are, you know, very seasoned uh, political right, journalists yeah. uh, with a lot of nous. And uh, you know, Chris Hope was getting his story together for uh, the Clifton Brown incident, and it, it just struck me as you know, it, it was an incident at a conference, but it was nothing that you know, no, there's nothing we haven't seen before. And the you know, do not know who I am uh, conflicts are they're, they're you know they're ten a penny. So you know, for that to be really the standout kind of alternative story of the conference, yeah. I don't think really says that much about how exciting the whole thing was. I mean, the camera guys were bored. It was hard for them to get a, you know, a shot of a, a charismatic uh, Secretary of State on the on the stump in the main conference hall because, quite frankly, I don't think there really was one. Uh, mm. And it, it really shows when those, when those guys, uh, they don't believe what they're being told uh, either. I mean, it's such an odd time to have these conferences anyway for all three parties. Mm. I mean, you know, quite, you know, apart from the prorogation issue, you know, and you know, this happens every year, but you know, there was some doubt. I mean, I was almost doubted whether they they were going to go ahead because I thought what could possibly, yeah, me too. 
What could poss- what could they possibly say? So I think some of it was was tone setting, I suppose. And you go back to well, we're going to go back to Pretty Patel, but it's, there's a, there's a sort of it's not necessarily sort of the content of what she's saying it's the tone she was setting, and, and perhaps that was was something that was was going on there. Mm. Um, comparisons to some recent American politics, perhaps. Mm. But uh, I suppose thinking about you know not much happening or a lot happening. Um, let's talk pensions. Okay. So yeah. when I in my day, uh, I was pensioned when I was pensionist journalist many years ago. It, this was easy. You'd mm. go to the Lib, Lib Dem conference and you'd follow Steve Webb everywhere he went. And then you might go to another conference and, and winkle out whoever was the, uh, you know, in the treasury maybe. And I yeah. had some sort of opposite number and, uh, and, and follow them around. And it was pretty obvious who the, who the, who the people were. And there was an agenda that was, that was ticking on pretty quickly, you know, with, mm. with all sorts of things going on. Um, now, obviously, you know, the, 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 the we've got, uh, the agenda's sort of somewhat been uh, muffled by uh, Brexit, I suppose, and other other reasons. Uh, and uh, the, a minister, a junior minister of pensions, I'm not sure it's quite his title, but uh, Guy Opperman, yeah. who has been, in my view, a sort of caretaker of sorts, mm. certainly not uh, the sort of... Uh, the, the, the power that Steve, Steve Webb was is a different context, of course, mm. uh, and and not, but also not sort of being mired in many controversies either, uh, or being outspoken. But um, but there is there are decisions that need to be made. Uh, there, you know, there isn't a that it needs to keep. You know, it needs it needs to keep going. So yeah, what what is happening? What's anything, happening? What well, did you, who did you speak to? What did they say? Well, I had, I had quite a lengthy conversation with Guy Opperman and I have to say, I actually thought, you know, there, there weren't a great deal of events specifically on pensions, mm. but you know, quality over quantity, it was a good event. If you'd been to the two events or three events that had real pensions relevance, I think you would have had a good time. And I think part of the reason for that was that Guy was there. I mean, no one was taking, I wasn't assuming that he would be there. You know, he he often acts as a kind of on-call minister if there's any kind of crisis, something to make a comment on within his department. So I think, I'm not going to overblow it, but he we were blessed by his presence actually and by his willingness to speak so openly about his priorities. I mean, one thing I would say is... Um, you know, he, he's a survivor. I mean, it's quite astonishing, really, that, uh, a rem, you know, an MP of such Remainer uh, principles has uh, survived this far into a very strongly pro-Brexit government. Uh, and clearly he uses pensions and and uh, his burgeoning expertise uh, to prove his worth in that mm. regard, to say, you know, look, I'm doing good work. You know, don't put a stop to this uh, I'm on board with the government's agenda. I won't interfere with any of the Brexit briefs. Just let me get on with the dashboard, with the pensions bill, uh, and with all of the government stuff surrounding uh, workplace and occupational occupational pensions. And that really shone through. You know, that really, yeah. really shone through. So, right so let's just, just go through those for, the, for listeners. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, desperate to hear some pensions news. Mm. So on the agenda, we've got Pensions dashboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got uh, he said. Now there's something about collective defined contribution pensions. That's correct. Yeah, has reared its head again. I remember yeah. again the great Sir Steve Webb <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about this 
a few years ago. So, so I think maybe just fill me, bring me up to speed on 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 that. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think he said some things about advisors specifically as well. He did, yeah. So to start, I mean, the first bit is all to do with the pensions bill, uh, right. and and that has the you know more of the framework for the collective defined contribution schemes uh, within it. Uh, I think it's quite extraordinary that uh, Guy has managed to push this through and to get it ready. Perhaps he's used some of the uh, noise that's been occurring uh, elsewhere in government mm. as a bit of a smokescreen to get his head fire. down, yeah, a bit of covering fire, then to come back with this idea so that you know his superiors can say, oh, well, you know, clearly you've done some good work on this yeah. and there's, there's evidential uh, basis uh, for it. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be we're going to be hearing a lot more about that. On the other uh, occupational pension uh, side of things, we've got the ESG regulations. Now, Guy, uh, again, don't want to sort of become a mouthpiece for his department, but he is so proud of that because it strikes me actually that he's fully on board with the climate change agenda. He he is not a climate change denier by any stretch of the imagination. He believes the science. He takes the warnings very seriously. Uh, so he's made some changes to ESG regulation within workplace pension right. schemes so that trustees, they have to produce reports uh, documenting what considerations they've made of the ESG impact of whatever investments they choose to make within the funds themselves. And it's going to ramp up. So and next year on the 1st of October, uh, they're going to have to start doing more. So it's, uh, you know, slowly but surely, perhaps not quickly enough. But Guy's proud of that, I think, actually. And it, it does yeah. does say that given given everything that's going on, probably he's done quite well to get things together and to be, you know, uh, hammering away at the pensions bill yes, in I the have background. To, I have to say he hasn't, he hasn't uh, had to struggle with it. Uh, I don't want to put this the wrong way, but an awful lot of uh, scrutiny for some of these things. Mm. Um, but uh, I said he's he's got a kind of quiet demeanour uh, mm. and hasn't been sort of uh, uh, very very uh, outspoken. I mean, and then what? So what then of uh, the dash the dashboard? I mean, do advisors need to care about the dashboard? Uh, it's it's sort of uh, been a running joke, I guess, for the yeah. couple of years, but. But, but but potentially really important. But maybe just, just explain what it is. I think uh, the so the pensions dashboard is this idea for a single uh, place uh, online on an app that you can have on your phone where you can view every single piece of pension data that is relevant to your uh, future retirement. So if you've got lots of small or large pots, uh, DC, uh, then you can see exactly what's in them uh, and potentially you know what the kind of growth over time is um there's a bit of a there was a bit of a debate here at the conference because we had uh, nigel mills mp for amber valley uh, who's on the work and pensions select committee sat there saying well you know uh, this is all very good but i actually don't think it's going to help consumers that much mm. and i think that that said to me that if it's not going to help consumers that much who don't have advisors it's probably not going to help advisors that much mm. because advisors they're already well versed in getting information uh from uh, providers and elsewhere um i'm sure having a dashboard will make their lives easier mm. but it's not going to be something that on day one advisors are going to say oh this is amazing this has changed our life yeah. in the way that perhaps platforms did or perhaps in the way that you know uh, yeah. portfolio construction has done yeah I, I, interesting one i think uh maybe advisors will will write in <laughs> to say you know, on the on the in the issue of getting information from providers, I think that can be excruciating. Yeah. Sometimes, it may also be a problem that the pensions dashboard 
runs into Absolutely. in terms of actually. Uh, but but perhaps maybe there's there, that's where the sort of the clout, the political clout, the, the, that sort of uh, momentum, that sort of stick uh, could be used to, to 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 actually get get things done. My take, mm. looking at something like open banking, is that uh, I, yes, I don't think the dashboard itself does anything, but I think it's it's a sort of engine with mm. which you could build a, a, a something else like a, a fintech. So I yeah. think that's I think in true true to sort of the you know the conservative ideals is be an idea for a business to come along and make of it what they will. Yes. And so then I think it's a, that's the sort of domino effect where yeah. then someone comes along and says well I've got a clever app that uh, mm. you know it just does some stuff you can see your pensions or, or whatever it's putting information through it's allowing you to make decisions. And that is something, you know, if, if, they, if there's a business proposition there, there's some more engagement there. That's perhaps something that will change things a little bit, move the dial a little bit. Yeah. And the advisors um, get involved and are certainly going to affect the way they deal with clients. And, and so much time is, I mean, any of these things, I always think there's so much time and money spent on, on fact finding, on that information gathering bit of advice. Yeah. And it, it's uh, it's important, but it, you know, from my my view, it must get in the way of of just talking to a client about what's important to them and yeah. so on and so forth. So, so uh, well, I think yeah, let, let's wait and see. But uh, yeah, it's sort of boring until it isn't. I, I mean, think. just on the data. I mean, guy loves data. I mean, he loves open banking. He loves tech, and he's made absolutely no secret of that. But I, when I spoke to him at the uh, the drinks event, uh, the annual Lansons uh, drinks event, you know, I said, you know, look, guy, has this been an absolute nightmare? Because it's been, it's been delivered, uh, you know, late. It's being the government initially formally backed it at the 2016 budget with a 2019 rollout date. That's obviously <laughs> obviously passed. Uh, the DB white paper was sorry. The dashboard white paper was late, uh, and I asked him, you know, on the record, guy, has this been a complete slog? And he said, you know, it has been a struggle. Mm. And I think the data is the biggest problem. The, the the data is always going to be the biggest problem. And he said, I really need my providers. I really hope my provider, the pension providers, are going to have their data together here, because right. without that, it's all going to fall apart. It's not going to be the promised product. Mm. And uh, just, you know, mentions of advisors, uh, you know, I think Opperman may have said said something and you spoke to someone else and mentioned it, but uh, yeah, just just uh, tackle that head on. Yeah. Who did you talk to advisors about? What did they say? Well, I mean, this was an interesting one because where Opperman is concerned, it's very obvious to me now that uh, we always knew that Opperman had to keep his lips quite tightly sealed on anything that was outside, even remotely outside the purview of his departmental perimeter mm. uh, and that he wasn't really going to start commenting on the FCA or the impact of its work on advisors. But look, it struck me, Oppen's got a lot of opinions on the advice thing. He's got a lot of uh, potential solutions uh, to some of the problems that have been occurring. Uh, it's almost as though having done this junior ministerial role, he's now chomping at the bit a little bit. And I can imagine how perhaps he's been a bit frustrated when trying to deal with the FCA uh, and it's clearly a little bit hard for him because he can't give all of his opinions all the time mm. about stuff that, you know, strictly is the is the concern. You, of the you Treasury. did have a conversation yeah. with him about, you know, British steel, British steel, yeah, uh, DB pensions. He was, uh, yeah, he was pretty pretty open about that. You know, he he 
he seems to think that you know the FCA has just got way too much on its plate mm. to be doing a good job on this. And uh, you know, uh, I'm sure I trust him on that. I'm sure as a man with a huge workload himself, he knows the importance of controlling your controllables. And I think it probably in his eyes, the FCA hasn't done that. He backs the idea that the I think the money advice service originally. Uh, proposed of yeah. having an approved sort of panel of advisors when dealing with Caroline large scale. It, yeah. yeah, Caroline Rooks. Uh, so he clearly has a lot of opinions about this. Mm. Um, and I, I imagine he's been quite frustrated, really, because it's like any, it's probably the any time that he sticks his head above the parapet at a departmental level to try and get involved in some of this big stuff, you know, uh, with TPR in particular, with their involvement with. Uh, occupational schemes like the the British Steel Pension Scheme. Yeah. You know, I, I almost feel like it's then the Treasury and the FCA that can then come in and like, yes, no, 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 no. This is, this is ours. This is ours. So it, it, I feel like he's probably been sidelined. Yes, there's that, always that funny thing with pensions that... Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of uh, two governors. You know, you, you, it has the, the, D, the DWP, where, where Offerman sits, yeah. uh, and, and the Treasury... Yeah. And uh, the, and the treasury have and also the, the treasury have their hand on on some things like uh, obviously taxation so pension tax relief issues that's a treasury issue mm. uh, and also has has uh, they they have uh, control of the, the regulator not control but they, it sits the, the the FCA sits it's responsible for the treasury is responsible for the FCA right? yeah there's independence as often you know that the, the FCA is for the record are independent of the treasury there's no mm. political meddling. Uh, uh, that that uh, that is put on the record, but um, so you know sometimes difficult brief for a pensions minister um, mm. to they must you know reach they get to a point where suddenly their brief reaches a dead end yeah uh, and then you have to start talking to someone in a completely different department. and it's it's interesting you mention the treasury because the tre you know the treasury does have input on all of these things I mean I was I was hearing that you know there are lots of candidates for for the role of Governor of the Bank of England. The Treasury, despite all of the flack that Andrew Bailey has had in the last you know, year uh, over uh, the FCA's work, the Treasury uh, at an official level, I say officials level, the civil, the senior civil servants, yeah. they are still firmly in favour of Andrew Bailey as being the next bank of, governor of the Bank of England because the Treasury needs someone who actually understands this stuff and is not just, uh, shall we say, a mouthpiece for a political agenda or a kind of celebrity uh, choice, shall we say? Uh, and you know, Andrew Bill fits Andrew Bailey fits that bill perfectly. He's not a glamorous guy. He, you know, he's he, he's an economist. He uh, has had a very very long career within mm. prudential regulation and and uh, and banking. So it, clearly, that's something that the Treasury is working on in, in the background. But I suspect that we are about to witness an almighty fight about over who gets that job, and I reckon that there could be some degree of uh, interference from Number Ten. And so there could be a bit mm. of a fight between number 10 and Treasury over this. How interesting. Uh, so, uh, right, well, you know, ne next year, I mean, any predictions are utterly pointless. Indeed, they <laughs> are. Yeah. But, you know, any sense of just your guess of like what, I guess this time next year, I mean, do you think it's likely we'll see even have, they'll still even be in power? Yeah. Well, there's a song by Keane, you know, that goes, the last time... Uh, you fall on me for anything you like, and I, I, I thought of that actually because I thought, and I don't, I'm not, 
you know, I'm not saying that this is sort of writ as a prediction, but I had this very, very strong feeling that this conference was the last time that we witnessed the Tory party in its current guise, uh, one party government uh, for a little while. And the reason for that was because it was very clear that this was sort of a calm before the storm. You know, there yeah. was no plotting going on about Boris's leadership as far yeah, as we yeah, could yeah. tell. Yeah. There was no there was no backstabbing really. Obviously there's the usual WhatsApp stuff, but there were no macro plots really to shift the party around and the party is what it is at the moment. And that said to me, okay, this is the calm before the storm. Next year it could all look very, very different indeed. We could have, you know, a coalition, we could have a caretaker government, we could have uh, you know, we could have another minority government. Whether Boris is going to be prime minister, that's obviously all to play for. I suspect he actually will be prime minister next year. But will he be prime minister of the same government and the same yeah. setup? I suspect not. Mm. Um, but that's as much as I can give you on that. Really, that yeah. was just my uh, <laughs> that was just my what? sense. That you know, unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> uh, and just just finally, Ollie, what was your what was your your favourite moment? favorite moment conference. i mean it's tough i don't i don't want to sound sort of too irreverent but it was the you know it was certainly uh without doubt the uh, the conversation between these two kind of quite youthful both bearded actually tory activists they must have been in their 20s one of them says to the other you know look there's owen jones let's go and wind him up owen jones being the uh, left-wing political commentator and campaigner yeah who's written books like uh, you know the establishment uh, and Chavs. Chavs, yeah. Um, and so they go, let's wind him up. So they were like, you know, very explicitly, he was like, let's go and wind him up. Right. <laughs> and uh, Owen Jones, you know, to be fair, had chosen to go to the conference. So he's to expect a degree of, uh, shall we say, uh, being rubbed up the wrong way yeah. by people <laughs> not of the same political inclination as him. But they went over to him and, had, you know, had a sort of chat to him. And he was sort of doing something else, to be honest. And uh, don't think it really, uh, don't think it really rubbed really had an impact but it did later when Owen Jones then later came across them again with his camera crew <laughs> and kind of got them on camera and was like well you know name one policy that's actually you know really really good from all of this and the guy was just on the back foot and I uh. just you know the Tory party is the party of the rule of law and fair play and you know and and it was just not cricket and the guy was totally ho hoisted on his own petard yeah totally and utterly and it just you know I just thought it was a it was a quite magnificent moment where I have disagreements with Owen Jones about various things but he was clearly the underdog at first in that scenario yeah. he was clearly on the back foot as a left winger at a conference surrounded by right wingers and he kind of had the last laugh and I thought you know fair play <laughs> It's funny, and I think, uh, you know, there's that exuberance, and he's, he's mentioned earlier, a lot of people attracted uh, by Boris Johnson's charisma, but I think no one no one does it as well as Boris. No. <laughs> and no. so, uh, um, you know, like, like him or loathe him, you, you can't deny that, but, uh, you, you know. Um, so, well, great, thanks, thanks, Ollie. I think it's, imp you know, we, we went to the, the Conservative conference, there's no particular favoritism apart from the fact they are the ruling party. Indeed, they and are. it is a fantastic opportunity to speak to policymakers, MPs, ministers, mm. people who is otherwise really hard to access, mm. and who are really managed and stage managed, mm. and you just don't get that opportunity. Uh, and the conference, as you found now, 
is they, they are much less guarded. Uh, they've got their party faithful, their supporters all around them, and they have to, it sort of militates towards a particular, you know, a bit of a bit more honesty. You know, they still spin, sure, yeah. but you get a bit more honesty, yeah. a bit more access, a lot more access than you would otherwise. And um, great opportunity, you know, for us. I think there's a lot, uh, you know, for people in the business of, of planning to, mm. to, to, think about, uh, to think about here. Uh, amidst all, all, all the uncertainty, so thanks for your for your hard work in the, in that regard. You're very welcome. Um, well, that's uh, it for now. Uh, we'll be back next week with another editor, uh, another episode of this podcast, uh, and maybe another editor. Uh, we'll be <laughs> uh, we'll be looking at ESG uh, and the rise of uh, impact investing. Uh, we'll have a surprise guest, someone familiar. To everyone here uh, at CityWire, uh, and maybe you'll know them too, uh, but find out who that is uh, next week. Uh, until then, don't forget to subscribe to our episodes on iTunes uh, and leave us a review. Uh, thanks from the both of us here, and goodbye. <laughs>